Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Today, we're going to be talking about the aviation world and the lessons that can be learned on business and leadership. We will be talking with a seasoned commercial pilot and a business consultant who will teach us a lot about the lessons they have learned, and it promises to be a very interesting and provocative discussion. They recently authored the best-selling book, Dark Cockpit, which talks about these lessons learned and is a wonderful read. It is my pleasure to welcome Captain Emil Dobrovolsky and Octavian Pontish to the show. Captain Emil is a pilot, pilot instructor, and a pilot examiner. He started at Tarum Romanian Air Transport in 1994 and has moved up through all of the professional ranks. In 2001, he became a type rating instructor, codenamed for instructor of pilots. And since then, the pilots he has trained have become captains for at least 12 airlines around the world. He is also a certified type rating examiner by the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, which gives him the authority to decide whether pilots continue to fly or are suspended from flying for a certain period. He also has vast management experience, having served in different operational and corporate leadership positions inside Tyrone, the most important being that of vice president and director of flight operations. Emil is an inspiring speaker invited frequently to address corporate events of different sizes, where he inspires people to higher levels of commitment and professionalism and teaches valuable communication, leadership, and risk management principles. Emil is a passionate biker, riding with his wife all over Europe on their Harley Davidson as often as they can. Octavian Pontish is an entrepreneur. He is the co-founder and managing partner of Qualians, an international training and consulting company. His firm is dedicated to helping organizations thrive while providing an environment where their people can grow professionally, are engaged, and have enough time for life outside work. Qualians was named several times Training Company of the Year and Partner Country of the Year in the international networks it is part of. Octavian is a partner in two other businesses and is also a best-selling author. His two books on productivity and work-life balance, as well as his dozens of articles and hundreds of trainings and speeches on the subject, have brought clarity, motivation, tools, and ideas to hundreds of thousands of people from all walks of life. He is a professional member of the USA National Speakers Association, and Octavian loves to spend time outside of work with his wife and three children. Whatever time remains is dedicated to skiing, squash, studying, and collecting old maps. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Christina, for the invitation. You're very welcome. I'm very excited about our conversation today. There's so many great things that we're going to be talking about. And first, what I'd love to do is for each of you to tell us a bit about your backgrounds and how you landed on your career paths. So if I may, I will start. Um, I am Emil Dobrovolsky. I'm a professional pilot since 1992. And since 1994, I've been flying for uh, Romanian national carrier Tarom. And I, um, for the last 20 years, I'm an instructor with them, flying ATRs, 42, 72, then Airbus 320 and Airbus 310. 
And now, not now, before the last 18 years or so, I've been an examiner from the Romanian uh, civil uh, authority part. And for the last, uh, let's say, 15 years or so, I've been telling stories, not to just to my pilots, but to my friends, to my colleagues, to different uh, audiences. And oh, they all find them uh, fascinating because they are stories about aviation, about the th things that happened to me. And little by little, I, um, I approached and I met uh, Octavian, Octavian Pantish. And we both uh, worked together for many, many speeches. They promote me with their consulting, business consulting uh, company. And uh, two years ago, or maybe more, Octavian, three years ago, he approached oh, three me years. and yeah. three years. And he told me, why are not writing a book about uh, the things you are telling uh, people in your speeches? So I said, I thought for about a second. And I said, why we are not uh, <laughs> writing it down together? Octavian being uh, the, the bestseller author for a business book in Romania. It's, it's called Musai List. So uh, we did it together. So here, here we are with a Romanian bestseller, uh, Dark Cockpit book in Romania, and with the international number one bestseller in Amazon. For, we launched it the 2nd of June. That's so exciting. So Octavian, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Sure. I, I can say that in my professional life, I have three hats. One of them is the is as an entrepreneur. The second one is as consultant and speaker. And the third one is an author. So as an entrepreneur, we started a uh, training and consulting company back in 1999. So it must be about 22 years ago. And we work mainly with large multinational companies operating in Europe mostly, but in the last two years also in Asia and also in the United States on helping them grow the human side of their business, um, increase their capabilities, increase their leadership capabilities and increase their sales capabilities and to build a healthy uh, organizational culture. And the business is, uh, is going well. Um, last year, the, at the beginning of the year with the COVID pandemic, uh, the entire industry went in kind of a, a freeze mode for a couple of months. But then it uh, had a very nice dynamic with very all of the sessions moving to online. And because they're online, really the world has become a smaller place because we can be in the same call and we're participants and trainers from literally around the world. The, the, second, um, the second head, the as a consultant and speaker, I spend my time researching uh, subjects um, like uh, leadership and mostly uh, recently now on productivity and the future of work. And I'm often invited to speak to address audiences about how they can be better and um, in becoming better leaders, in changing their mindsets, in having the right mindsets, in uh, challenging their existing paradigms, and also in how they can be more productive. Now, people are still working quite a lot from home. And, you know, at home, some people might have some kids uh, walking around or dogs, or on the contrary, they might be just by themselves um, and they miss the community, the team spirit that they had when they were in the office. So the third head is that of an author. Um, I wrote a very good book on productivity and work-life balance back in 2012 it still sells very well and i'm work i began i just began working on a revised edition of it um, adapted to the current uh, world of work where everything is remote and uh, uh, where things are no longer the same uh, in the same way they were two years back so these would be a couple of words about me 
Wow. So this is, this is really exciting. And I'm really excited to, to talk about the book that you both jointly authored in a moment. I'm just curious, obviously, as we've touched upon, the world has changed over the past year and a half. And I'd be really excited to hear from you both before we start talking in more detail about your book. Did you have any aha moments or moments of realization as you were embarking on this journey together to write this book, either inspired by COVID or otherwise, which really made it clear to you that you had to get together and get your message out? Um, If I may just uh, uh, have a a short answer to this, the answer is uh, yes. We discovered that, especially in times of change, people look for inspiration. People look for ideas. They are not looking to attend a five-year something, but they are looking for ideas. They are looking for places where some things work and that those things they can take into their lives. And uh, we're happy to report that aviation, for for me, as we began researching uh, the subject, I began researching the subject with Emil a few years back. It was amazing to discover um, the the very high level of um, everything that they do, the communication, the leadership, the safety, the to making sure that every everything runs as it should be. Just to give an example, uh, before COVID, there were up to 25,000 planes in the air at a given moment. Just imagine that 25,000 wow. places up in the air at a given moment. Uh, also to give an information about what, what COVID did to that, the... The low point was uh, March, April, actually uh, last year, where the number uh, went down to about five, six thousand, so down to one fifth. And now they're back to maybe 16, 18 on average, 18,000 on average per day. But just imagine there are thousands of planes, so many things that need to be done in the best way possible. Otherwise, there would be tragedies that we would be reading in the news. So aviation is a treasure of know-how for people who don't pilot planes, but who pilot a business, who pilot a team, who pilot their professional careers. And we we were inspired by the fact that uh, we, we must bring this message uh, as fast as we can to as many people as we can, because, yeah, we're all good. We're all experienced. We we all at least think to ourselves, yes, I can do this. But we, 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 we do look for ideas. And aviation is a place where you can get a lot of ideas from. And talking about last year, I never thought about myself as being resilient or I was not, let's say, familiar with the word itself. But I found in myself in a position when the 16,000 hours pilot, the test pilot, the examiner, just sitting on, a, on, on the ground, grounded for almost a year, looking at an empty sky. I volunteered for some humanitarian flights, but there were like three or four a month. So this was uh, most of the activity I had last year. And it was pretty tough because... Um, I need to find the inner resources to cope with this. And uh, the, the fact that the pilots are trained for action, normally they are um, looking for the future. They try to solve things. So I need to try, I tried to find myself inner resources to, to cope with this situation when I was not flying. So what I did, I follow my advice given to the young co-pilots coming to my company, telling them, uh, when they, when t- some, from time to time, we have some upgrade exams. So, of course, they are to upgrade to, from first officer to captain side. So, um, most of the time, 
We have three or four places, maybe six sometimes. And of course, there are 20, 50 candidates for that four places. And of course, there will be only four to be upgraded. The rest of them, some of them, the most inexperienced, they normally excuse themselves by saying, uh, look, if I only knew the exam will, will be next week, I would be more prepared. So my, my advice is that, look, if you are a professional, try to be at the top of your knowledge and skill. Try to cope and try to be all the time prepared, not just for the exam, but for every flight. Mm -hmm. So th I did this like last week, last year. So I tried to maintain my, my knowledge at a higher level possible by reading, by making uh, computer-based training. Uh, my company did some uh, uh, sacrifice and sent all the pilots, keeping all the licenses active. We went to simulator training, the full-fly simulator training. We continued the ground training. So in terms of, uh, let's say, skills and knowledge, we are at a higher level. The, the hard part was the non-technical skill to, to keep it uh, trained and uh, running. It was this thought about the fact when the aviation will start again, and for sure it will start again, it will start with the most prepared people. They need the uh, trained people. And this is one, one, one thought. The other one was my clients, my passengers, okay? Because my, my flight is my project. So when I'm accepting passengers on board and I have to fly them from A to B, they expect to fly in a safe manner, comfortable and on time. So this was my, my, two, my two thoughts that kept me fresh and willing to sacrifice time to learn, to stay like, uh, not to just, uh, you know, complaining about the fact that the whole, the, the whole aviation is grounded. So the hard work continued, even though there were maybe about 20% of the flights that there had been pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah, before, before that, in, uh, in, um, I think in June, 2019, there were 250,000 flights a day. One day, the peak was in June 2019 with 250 flights a day. Now imagine the level of uh, professionalism asked from pilots, asked from air traffic controllers, on, um, from, for, asked from, from anybody involved actually, because there's no space for error or they are very tiny. So you need to keep your uh, crews and you need to keep your professionals and your colleagues to, to the best level they, uh, possible. Well, this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you both. Just to set a context here, there are a number of different facets of leadership and business that we're going to be talking about today. And for my listeners who may not know this about me, in addition to being a lawyer, I'm also a manufacturing engineer, and I actually subspecialized in my undergraduate degree in safety engineering. So I got to know quite a bit about aviation, at least through that lens of safety protocols and, and things of that nature. And I'm really thrilled to be able to speak with you both today about the parallels between aviation and certain aspects of business and leadership, including, as you mentioned, Emil, resilience, communication, team effectiveness, managing risk, dealing with uncertainty, uh, professional growth, productivity, and ethics. Just to jump right in, um, knowing that an hour is never long enough, I'd love to start our conversation on communication, which really is the bedrock of a lot of what we are going to be talking about today. 
we all communicate every day. And I think we all do our best to try to communicate often and to communicate clearly. But even that being said, oftentimes there are misunderstandings and these misunderstandings, especially in an industry like aviation, can have serious consequences. Emil, I don't know if you would like to start by talking about how pilots communicate with each other and what you've learned in the context of aviation about things that are critical for communication and things that you don't want to do when it comes to communication. Now, exactly as you said, on our personal or maybe in our professional lives, we come to this conclusion so often, isn't it? We didn't communicate well but when something went uh, wrong or we could, we could communicate better. But in aviation, we have a word. It's pretty medieval, but it sounds like this. Uh, in aviation, the history of aviation is written in blood. So for us, communication or good communication is crucial. And uh, imagine every time the couple of pilots, the captain and the first officer in a dark cockpit looking forward, they don't see each other. They have headsets on their ears and they are cross communication in that there's the noisy environment with the aircraft. Uh, You can hear the drag in the air of of the aircraft fuselage. You can hear communication, sometimes intercoms, sometimes... uh, just noise, white noises, and they have to pass the message to each other directly in a proper way. So they they don't see each other to validate with the body language or micro gestures to validate the message, but the message should always pass through directly. So of course, there are some rules. We have standard calls for for it to help, but there are hundreds of situations when uh, the standard calls, they don't cover. So every action in, in the aircraft starts, every standard operation procedures starts with the standard calls. But sometimes the standard calls, that they don't cover the whole situation and you have to pass somehow the message. And sometimes, especially on critical moments of the flight, like a takeoff or maybe landing, or maybe when something goes wrong and you have an emergency in the air, you have just a few seconds to send the right message to make sure that the other one understands the, to um, do a proper task sharing for the leader, for the captain, to let the other one do what they're trained to in order for him to or her to take the good decision, to build a good decision. So things like this, uh, hour after hour of flight, uh, day after day, year after year, they, they develop in, in pilots a special skill in communication and when I'm it's very funny because in the simulator training when I'm telling to my students before the simulator in the briefing room I'm telling them that the pilots are uh, expert communications communicators they are very they don't believe it like okay how how that how is it uh, uh, working and I explain them bits by bits how they can pass a message rolling with 150 miles per hour on, a, on an asphalt runway in such a way that uh, uh, the aircraft can lift or how can they pass a message when they are with oxygen masks on their faces and they are in the smoke uh, 
uh, in the cabin situation or things like this, which, which we train in the simulator, they realize that in fact they are expert communicators. If you if you um, if you think about hey okay what can we in business learn from communication and aviation? Here are two or three uh, things. Number one is feedback. In uh, often in business communication, feedback is missing. Somebody is presenting something to a team, maybe in an online call. Nobody's on video on. <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. some of them might be checking emails in the meantime and whatever. And the manager might ask at the end, "Okay, uh, any questions?" And usually the answer is no, no questions because no one's no one's willing to say, uh, "Excuse me, I, I I think I'm the village idiot. I did not understand." <laughs> uh, you know. They don't say that. So. What happens in aviation, if, you, um, if, if our listeners read the book or if they watch any movie that has aviation in that, is that when the message is passed, the receiver repeats it. So if the tower says, maintain heading 270, uh, the people in the cockpit don't just say, okay, or yeah, sure, by the way, how are you, Frankfurt, good to see you, or whatever. No, no, they say they repeat the message, maintaining heading 270, or whatever the message may be just to make sure it is understood. So what is the first learning? If you on the receiving end are not sure of what the message that was passed was entirely about, make sure you ask, make sure, yeah, become vulnerable, vulnerable a little bit or follow up after the call. If you are the sender of the message, do more than any questions? No. Okay, great day, everybody. Uh, have a nice weekend. See you on Monday. No, but if it's a one-on-one -on -one, uh, call, for instance, and you delegate something to someone, ask them to, hey, could you please summarize it through two, three bullets of what you'll do as a, in this project next week and send it over to me. So invite them to uh, write you a feedback. Don't, in some cases, the manager is uh, very concerned. So I do the presentation and because I want to make sure everything is fine, it will also be me the one who sends the email, but that's not feedback. That's just the same message into uh, channels from the same sender towards the same receiver. We still don't have feedback if, if I'm the one that sends the mail, but if it's the other ones who send the mail back to me, I will immediately see uh, how much they understood. Did they get it? Are they going to do something? What is it they're going to do uh, about it? And also, if you look at, um, it was fascinating for me in aviation, a lot of things need to be done, but still they take their time to do them. It's not five messages coming through uh, every minute, unless there's a big ultra emergency, which is almost never the case. They do it one by one. What does it mean to us in business? Don't write two screen emails with seven bullets or whatever, because chances are they're gonna, not going to read past the maybe three, four, fifth paragraph unless it's really crucial for them. But if, if you're sending an email to three people and place five more in CC and you take half an hour to or one hour to write that email, um, it might not get the message that we are hoping to get. And one more thing you might add, you know, the communication is impersonal in the, in, in, in the cockpit. Because after you close the door of that metal tube with wings and you fly with it at 39,000 feet with 500 miles per hour, the only ones solving the problem or the problems, problems that can come are the, the crew, the pilots with the cabin crew. So the, the communication in, in a cockpit is impersonal. Sometimes I see in the simulator that the, one of the pilots, maybe the older one, maybe the senior one, maybe the captain, is so focused on, on what he does. And some, sometimes there are very complex and complicated uh, emergency situations which we train in a full fly simulator. 
and the co-pilot says something using a standard call, and because the other one is so focused, he may him almost in a tunnel vision like. So the co-pilot has to repeat it and raise his voice or her voice. And but if I if you ask the captain if he was offended by it, he he wasn't. He was really happy that the other one is giving uh, or is giving the right feedback at the right moment. And sometimes maybe they need to raise their voice, but not in a manner like we are. You are is on the ground when you raise your voice. Uh, of course, uh, maybe there's an argument. There's no argument in a cockpit. You raise the voice to to for the other one to pay more attention to the situation to give a feedback. So helping the older or the the leader to make uh, better decisions. So this is one, one trick we use. So the communication in the cockpit is impersonal. It's nothing to do with the persons involved. It has to do with the result, with uh, they are focused on uh, solving the problem. So this is one, uh, one trick anybody can use in a, a professional communications. You both bring up some brilliant points. And I, I think what, what I'm hearing is there are a lot of different things, but one thing I would really like to make a note of is that in order for what you both discuss to work in terms of communication, people not only need to hear the message, they need to actually be listening to it and to be focusing on what is being communicated. And it sounds like focus is a critical part of communication, both from the sender side as well as the receiving side. And it's a delicate balance because obviously there has to be enough focus for a message to be properly delivered and received and to be acted upon, but sometimes realizing that if there's too much focus, a message may not end up being heard. And that's when you mentioned Emil, the, that the co-pilot may sometimes have to repeat a message and that it's not a personal thing. It's more of a, we need to make sure you heard and received and are listening to the message. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the, the one of the takeaways is that if you want to be a communicator, you need to be present in that conversation, whether it's on the phone or live and in person or in that call, uh, whether you're on the um, sending side or on the receiving side. It's not something that, uh, yeah, I'm attending a call and I do two or three other things in the meantime. I'm answering an email, I have a window open with the news, and I am, uh, apparently I'm a successful guy doing 10 things. Yes, but out of the 10 things, maybe three or four will get me nowhere, and the other three or for will will be just average. It's much better if we are in this call together, if we agreed to meet and discuss this project, let's discuss it. Let's focus. And if all of us will focus, we'll notice, hey, we did not need one hour. 25 minutes were enough. But now, now everybody leaves knowing what is it exactly that they need to be doing. Rather than those long calls where I do three things, you do three things, everybody else does three things. And that is a, a complete waste of time. And unfortunately, in the world, in the business world today, there are so many calls. There are, People are in calls all day. I asked a customer for a <laughs> for a meeting, uh, and I suggested um, this happened um, uh, last week, and I suggested, hey, how about uh, Tuesday afternoon at four? 
And she said, uh, well, actually, Tuesday afternoon at four, I can't do, I said, hey, wait, don't tell me you're in a call. And he said, Octavian, actually, I'm in two calls in the same time. So how is it possible? Always these long, boring calls from the corporate HQ. So one is on Teams, one is on Zoom, and uh, one is in the project team, one is on my department team. How can I be on two calls? Oh, I can be on two. I could even be on three because I, that's how it is. Yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> but it's not the most effective uh, way to, to do things. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, I agree. And even though we have the technology to do it, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should try to be in two or three or even four places at one time, right? Yeah, yeah. Technology is is nothing if we don't use it properly, right? You can have, and there's lots of uh, YouTube videos with young people getting a Ferrari. Uh, maybe their dad uh, had the great idea to get them a Ferrari when they're 21 or 22, and they crash them uh, within five hundred meters or a hundred. Uh, why? Because they're not equipped to handle that technology. Uh, it's it's too much for them. And it, it's the same in many other ways. There are, there are um, people who have great technology, but do not have even by far the effectiveness they could have with that technology, whatever technology is. It could be a car, it could be a plane, it could be the latest office equipment or things like, or other things. Well, this has been incredibly helpful in terms of really framing communication in a way that is is very meaningful and particularly on the business front. And that actually, it's a really good segue to the next question I had for you both as we wind down our first segment on leadership. Obviously, leadership is something that no matter what industry you're in or what profession you're in. There's always a lot of talk about being a leader, how to get to be a leader, what makes a great leader, what are the tools that constitute great leadership, what should good leaders not do. So from the perspective of aviation and using that really as the analogy point, what advice do you both have for those who want to move from co-pilot to captain, so to speak? I know that You believe that there are several broad requirements, one of which may be pretty easy, but the others may be hard. Can you both elaborate on this? Uh, Actually, the story I'm going to tell you now, it's uh, Octavian's idea. One time he told me, you you realize that every time you go to a flight, you have a different team to lead. So it's right, because sometimes you fly with with another co-pilot, with a crew, and maybe for the next year or so, you'll never fly with them again. So in order for them to accept you as a leader, uh, beside of your uniform and your um, stripes on your shoulders, they all, they know who's the captain, isn't it? But in order for them to accept you as a leader, you need to do something more than normally a boss does, okay? Because if I'm starting um, a briefing before the flight with a crew, and I show them who's the boss, and I look down on them, yeah, I will close in my cockpit, or I will close my cockpit door, and uh, I will fly my plane, I'm very well prepared, I'm experienced, I will do a perfect flight, in my opinion. But behind that door, I will have a crew who will not communicate to me on a proper level, they will not be on the same page with me, maybe there's some... I don't know, some arguments with some passengers. And at the end of the day, my product, my flight, is not just me flying the cockpit from one point to another. 
It's me with my crew getting on an airplane, accepting 150 passengers and flying them uh, together as a crew. So if I want my product to be good, I need my, my crew to be on the same page with me. So besides of the technical um, level of the briefing we do before flight, we always try to attract people and to make them understand what is the reason they are uh, flying to that day. What is the reason they left home, come to, to the office, and why is the reason they get into the airplane? Doing that, they, they will be aware that you care about the product, you care about the flight itself, about your project. And uh, so often in my career, I get the help or I get the right feedback at the right moment to help me to solve the, the situation, not just from my co-pilot or from my colleagues in the cockpit, but sometimes behind the cockpit door in the cabin. So it's very important uh, as a leader, first of all, to don't, not to look down on people. Of course, everybody knows to delegate. And there's a story with, uh, with, with an exercise we do every simulator. It's the emergency evacuation. And it's very funny that uh, the, on, during this emergency drill, the captain does nothing. The co-pilot is the one acting and doing all the maneuvers in the cockpit. The captain's uh, pulling his chair to have a better overview, physical overview, to, have, to, to build his decision. His thoughts, his thoughts are, oh, how much fuel do I have in that wing? Uh, why, why, wh what we'll do if the engine will not, uh, the uh, fire extinguisher will not extinguish the uh, engine fire? Where is the wind coming from? Where I'm at? Where I'm uh, about to leave and uh, call the passengers to come with me, not to run in front of the fire brigade cars and uh, things like this. If I have uh, uh, maybe dangerous goods in the cargo hold and things like this, you, the leader does nothing but builds his decision. So if you have a crew and they are qualified, let them do their job because they'll do the job and they will do with the responsibility. They will be aware of their uh, role in the process. So they will do it responsible. And secondly, they will give you time to think and to build your decision. So this is just one or two of the things we do in the airplane. But sometimes the most complicated and hard things is to, when we upgrade the first officer to the captain side, is to develop this uh, non-technical skill of uh, uh, decision-making or situation awareness when the first officer makes just half a meter, maybe one meter and a half in the cockpit to the left, but is a huge, huge change in the, uh, his mind or her mindset. For instance, what does this mean to uh, a listener that we might have and who says, uh, hey, I want to get promoted to a senior leadership in my position in my team. So what Emil is saying is that you have to have the technical side right, right? You, you need to be good at what you're doing. If you're a pilot, you need to be able to pilot that plane, to navigate the plane through a storm, turbulence, land it well, and things like that. If you're an IT specialist, obviously you need to be good in, in your field. If you're a lawyer, you need to be good in, in your field. But if you want to move up in the leadership position, um, that is simply uh, not enough. Something else will be needed. It will be the uh, the maturity to make decisions, to take time to, to build the right decisions, and also the responsibility. Now, let me give a, a, an example. Some, maybe it happened to uh, many of us 
you had to uh, borrow a car from your uncle maybe and he said okay i'll give you the car but please note it it ha- please it, it does not have any insurance so and then maybe we say oh my god i don't want to drive a ten thousand dollar car without insurance who knows what will happen now pilots or driving or piloting planes that do not cost uh, $10,000, uh, but they might cost $100 million or $200 million. And even uh, infinitely more value than that, they have 200 passengers on board or 400 passengers on board. So as a leader, you have to be willing to take responsibility for that project. It's one of the worst things you hear in a meeting when uh, something went wrong and the leader starts saying, yeah, well, it, it was uh, not my fault. It was the other guy's fault. It was that guy's fault. And we didn't have, get the info. And I would say, come on. I mean, you're you're responsible for the project. It was your project. You selected your team. Yes, but I mean, the, COVID happened. Of course, COVID happened. You're not responsible for, for COVID, but you're responsible for that team. So one of the a criteria that um, we look for when we want to promote people is, do they display responsibility? Are they able to own the problem? Are they able to, to, to really solve it? And if they want to lead a team, are they capable of solving that problem together with their team? Are they able to delegate and listen? Or do they just use their technical skill to direct people to lift to left or to right or in different other places? Because if that's the only thing that happens, that's not going to be a very successful leadership experience on a longer term. Gentlemen, you've given some really amazing advice, both on leadership as well as everything else that we've discussed this morning, communication, resilience, and so forth. We are at the end of our first segment together. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners and where can they find you? I just want to add to Octavians that uh, a proper captain, when something goes wrong in the cabin and uh, you find out after the flight that there was maybe an argument with a passenger or something went wrong in the back, the captain, the proper one, the leader, will take responsibility for that as well. In front of uh, investigators or in front of uh, a superior in the company, they will take responsibility. Look, this was this flight was mine. I'm the captain of the flight. And if one of my crew members, one of my colleagues, they uh, didn't understand their role in the aircraft, it's my fault at first time. Of course, everybody knows that it was the captain wasn't involved. Yeah, the captain was flying the flight, but the whole project is captain's project. If the project is good and everybody applauds the captain, why not the captain taking the responsibility for what went wrong in his flight? So this is one thing which always a good captain will do. Funny things. Ha- a funny thing happens with responsibility, and it's a nice way to summarize the point. Is then. Obviously, some things are in my direct responsibility. I made a mistake or I did something magical that saved the, saved the day. And some things are somewhere in the middle. I'm doing a presentation and uh, you know, let's say we're back in a room and the projector on the ceiling stops working. Now, now, what happens is the following. If you take responsibility even for the things in the middle, you could call them. Like the project, if you say something like, "Oh, I, I'm sorry, uh, projector doesn't work. Um, uh, let's see what we can do about it." So, if you take responsibility for what's in the middle, people are much more likely to excuse you and to say, "Come on, Octavian, you're not responsible for the projector in the conference room. Nobody used it for a year. It's clearly not your fault. Don't worry." But if you don't take responsibility for what's in the middle, 
if you say, oh my God, I was willing to do a great presentation, but you're not even able to be even, even able to provide a good projector, then people are much more likely to say something like, yeah, 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 of course, but you should have checked it, Octavian, before the call, right? So they might be uh, more tempted, tempted to accuse you a, a little bit of that. So what is the learning? Take responsibility for what's in your yard, whether it's in your direct responsibility, your own actions or your team's actions. Because if you do that, uh, you project strength. You don't project weakness. You project strength. Now, uh, good luck, uh, everybody. Where can you find us? There there's a web page of the book. Uh, the web page is darkcockpitbook.com. And you'll find things about us. You'll find, uh, um, you can download a, a chapter and, and read it. Uh, and you can find different other resources. You can also reach both of us uh, on LinkedIn, uh, Emil Dobrovolsky, and also uh, look for my name, Octavian Pantish. We'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn and stay in touch. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. And I'm really looking forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. We hope that you've enjoyed part one of our conversation with Captain Emil Dobrovolsky and Octavian Pontish. And we hope that you will join us next week for part two of our conversation. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.